hippopotamus for Christmas. A hippopotamus is all I want. Don't want a doll, no dinky dinker toy. I want a hippopotamus to play with and enjoy. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, and my regular co-host Luke Savage has fallen down a well. No, that's not true. He's actually in the Algonquin wilderness for an annual trip that he takes to go canoeing and to completely disconnect. I actually have no way of contacting him right now. There's no cell phone reception where he is. It's a great opportunity for him to not be online, which is where he lives most of the year. So we're all hoping and praying that he's safe. But in the meantime, I do have a very special guest host. He is the editor and co-host of the Tech Talk podcast, as well as, well as the podcast <laughs> editor for two very beloved brands, Know Your Enemy and Jewish Currents, as well as a former producer for WNYC's On the Media. It's Jesse Brenneman. Hello, sir. Hello. It's good to be here filling in for Luke. I'm aiming to be the anti-Luke um, <laughs> to just because I was... Thank Christ. I know. Well, as a listener, I first time, long time, and, you know, I do have to mute his half usually. Mm, um, yes. So, no, you know, I was just thinking, Luke, you know, he likes War and Peace. I prefer uh, Anna Karenina. Ooh. He doesn't look at his phone in bed. I look at my phone in hours, (laughs) for hours in bed. Uh, So I'm just going to give you some of that down to earth, you know, and also I'm American, so I can bring some of that perspective because I know you guys are typically pretty provincial um, and sort of Canadian focused on the show. So I can let you know what's going on here in the States because I know you don't follow it that closely. We have been accused of stealing American valor a lot, you know, (laughs) focusing on Trump and related matters when we could be uh, focusing a little more on the country where we actually live. Uh, So I mean, since we're not going to do that, I'm happy to have a real American here. Um, I uh, know I'm I'm not the right guy to talk to about any of that, but I am happy to provide my insights wherever they may arise. I will say I'm in Montana now and I grew up just an hour south of the Alberta border. Spent many an hour of my life in Calgary, go Flames, and Edmonton, you know, the real Canada, Western Canada. I mean, you're probably more Canadian than me because I'm not sure I've ever really been west of Thunder Bay, so. And I've barely been east of Calgary, so, together. First of all, I just want to tell the listeners that Jesse was kind enough just in the DMs to share with me. He uh, digitized an album called The Three Stooges Sing Six Happy Yuletide Songs, uh, which was released during the blighted Curly Joe Dorita era. (laughs) And it was one of several albums that The Three Stooges released in the 60s. They had, you know, like when you add them all up, it's like comparable to the Beatles, just in terms of (laughs) a number of albums, putting aside issues of quality. And uh, there's some real bangers on this. I mean, certain of the tracks I've heard before, because they were recycled and used in many different uh, albums, like uh, I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas, I was familiar with. Sure. Uh, All I Want for Christmas, I knew, but I did not know their rendition of Wreck the Halls or or Jingle Bell Drag. The second side as I said, of the of the EP is where it's at, because that's where they get into more of their own. You know, Curly Joe gets shouted out a number of times on side two in Wreck the Halls, Jingle Bell Drag, and um, Down Through the Housetop, I want to say, is the last one. Right, right. Where they are destroying the house or something to that effect. Well, this is apropos of the movie we watched today, which we don't have to rush into that. But, you know, when you put out a call for Stooges memorabilia, um, it was <laughs> it felt like I was doing such an like a service to have bought this record because I have a compulsion to buy records like 
like this. Like <laughs> three stooges just sing holiday songs like that. I've got to have that. Like that's so important that I have that and then never listen to it and never have anything to do with it. And then it was so validating to have someone say, does anyone have any weird three stooges shit um, <laughs> <laughs> that they want to share? Um, it, it really made my work feel so uh, important. I have one three stooges album on CD. I think it's called the nonsense Songbook, and it's them singing like novelty songs from the 1920s. But it ends with them doing a completely serious rendition of a song called Give Thanks. Give thanks to the wonderful sunshine. Give thanks for the wonderful sunshine that helps you to smile when you're blue. For the birds in the springtime Singing their songs to cheer you along The raindrops bring happy hours You know, just like <laughs> totally earnest um and i just i just love the idea of the three stooges you know spreading their wings you know stretching artistically a little and delivering yeah. something just serious and solid the record company was like they were you know i just like to imagine them constantly being like all right but the next album is going to be like our serious one right and the record company is like yeah 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 yeah. just like you know whack each other with a board a couple more times stick them in the eye and then you can you know we'll let you do your song yeah you're gonna totally. you know and, and let the drummer have their song and one of my actual holy grails as an album and I could get it on eBay if I wanted to for like 120 bucks but one of my actual holy grails to just find somewhere is I think their final album which was called Yogi Bear and the Three Stooges Meet the Mad Mad Dr. No-No which uh, you can listen to it on YouTube. It's, right. uh, you know, kind of a, it, it's not a musical album. It's a storybook album where, I mean, as the title implies, the Three Stooges team up with uh, Yogi Bear. And it does feel a little bit like, I don't know, a bit of a come down. It's like, you know, puppet show and spinal tap, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and they're doing the jazz odyssey. So that must be like, what, mid late 60s then? If Yogi yeah. Bear is the bill, is the top, is like the co headliner? 65, 66. The, bo- the boomers are starting to get a little older at this point right well alvin and the chipmunks are sweeping the nation and uh they're just trying to keep who is dr no-no is he a known character from elsewhere i, b- or... I believe he's a spoof of the james bond character dr, dr. No. no yeah bond fever okay. would have been like near its fever pitch at this point you know i gotta say like for the stooges of the hanna-barbera characters yogi bear is pretty good to get like you know it would have been worse if they were paired with like top cat yeah or, you know mcgilla gorilla yogi bear is an a-list he's like second only to fred flintstone probably he- he's the d to Fred Flintstone's Frank. I don't know, Will, how much you, you know, I assume you've got fan mail coming in constantly for the podcast. Oh, and groupies. Let's not forget. Oh, well, we can talk more about that later off mic, but I have fe- felt so seen with your Three Stooges uh, <laughs> representation because the Three Stooges when I was a kid were so important to me, but more than funny, they felt so, I mean, I didn't grow up sheltered, but my parents weren't particularly culturally plugged in. Like they didn't listen to a lot of music growing up. Like I, there were certain things, like we had, you know, five or six channels. I watched PBS and stuff, but like, I feel like maybe this is how every kid feels. I found out about the Three Stooges through like a friend of the family who had them on VHS. Mm-hmm. And it was like he was the keeper 
of this like arcane knowledge because <laughs> I just didn't, I remember the first time I saw them, like just not understanding where they came from. And then as like a six or seven year old learning about Curly Joe and just the idea just warped my brain. That's like there was Curly and then Curly died. And then there was another guy who looked like Curly and they called him Curly Joe. Like all of that just felt like such important knowledge as a kid. And they really like occupied a lot of my time and, and mental energy. So I just, you know, I've been appreciating the, like the filling in, you've been filling in a lot of gaps for me. Because I, like, I still have that like half-formed child's understanding of what exactly the hell was going on. I, I had a comparable experience with <laughs> like, you know, because when, when you're a kid, you're just seeing a lot of this stuff just on public domain VHS tapes or on yeah. TV and not quite knowing the context for it and, and thinking, okay, well, why is he Shemp sometimes, you know? And, th and right, then why, right, right. why is he, well, all of a sudden, Curly's not funny anymore and he seems like he's had a stroke. Oh, he's cur he's Curly Joe. Well, wh why? Right. Is that, is that a relative? <laughs> Sometimes there's two Mo's, but one of them's name is Shemp. Yeah, like, that's just, right. You know, like you're just like, <laughs> and and as a kid, you don't understand. This is like, as you've said, like 30 years of career. Mm. You know, like repackaged and resold. And again, like because I only knew them through this one guy who had the VHSs, it kind of seemed like he was the keeper of that. I remember being like, if you want to know what the Stooges, you have to go to Drew and get the information from him. Mm. Like you can't just, you can't just get this in the wild. This is protected knowledge. Well, I hope to fill that role for the next generation. Um, <laughs> I was just going to say, you've never watched the Three Stooges movie for the podcast, the recent Blighted. The the, fa the uh, Fairly Brothers film? No, uh, yeah. we, we haven't. It's hard to find a political angle on it, to tell you the truth. Oh, come on. Although, I, mean, you know, I got to tell you, the, the, the 2012 Fairly Brothers Three Stooges, I'm a fan of. I like it. Okay. Uh, a lot okay. of people don't. I don't know. I think it's a delight. I think those three guys embody the roles eerily. Yeah. And um, yeah, I don't know. If you're a stooge head like I am, I look at it and I think, what what's not to like? It's got all the stooge stuff. And like they're so, the Fairleys were so meticulous. Uh, I think I, right. I, admi I admire it as much as just like a bizarre artifact that they were so determined to recreate this in the year 2012. I love that. Yeah. For that to be your passion project, it's like, you know, laboring for 20 years with the greatest team of scientists to create like the world's best functioning whoopee cushion. Uh, I, 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 re I respect that, that the Fairleys did that. Well, that reminds me, this week we have been doing some heady viewing in our household. We watched both of the Brady Bunch movies from 95 and 96, um, which I remember liking as a kid. And then I was reminded of them after watching Barbie mm -hmm. and for some reason. And so my wife had never seen them, so we watched them both. And I really loved them in a different way this time for exactly what you're describing, which is they're so niche and so committed to something that has like such a limited appearance. I have to think because the thing that makes them remarkable is they just shoot them like a Brady Bunch episode to a T especially the second one it's not there's not even really a twist it's literally just like a Brady Bunch episode mm -hmm. but from 1996 and they just shot it all exactly the right way and decorated it all like clearly the the passion driving the project was verisimilitude mm -hmm. like we want this to really be the Brady Bunch and I found that to be so charming and something that just wouldn't happen now because it wouldn't nearly appeal to enough people to get made basically but I feel like at the time it was like well enough obviously you know 90s there was nostalgia for the Brady Bunch but like it felt so sort of charmingly humble in its scope like nope this is just going to be a real Brady Bunch episode but it's starring a bunch of celebrities well you know the Flintstones <laughs> movie with John Goodman I heard an, right? I heard an interview with the guy who directed that you know visionary director Brian Levant and would you believe that <laughs> he's actually in real life to this day is is like the world's biggest Flintstones fan he's got all the merch he he loves the Flintstones he's obsessed uh, and Thank and God. he he really just 
you look at the Three Stooges movie or um, uh, the Flintstones movie, or I haven't seen the Brady Bunch movie in 25 years, but yeah. like, yeah. but I assume that too. And it's like, they seem to be made by people who actually just wanted to live in that world, just construct that world Absolutely. around them. Which I would say is exactly what Tarantino wanted to do in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, just with loftier ambitions. You know, he's just like, I wish I lived in Hollywood in the 60s and now I can. Yeah, totally. For the period of making this and movie. And maybe we could figure out a way to extend it even longer by making sure, yeah. you know, <laughs> making sure those hippies got what's what. <laughs> Exactly. What if what if the party never ended? So before we get to the movie, I do want to ask you about the Tech Talk podcast. Oh, please. I'm an open book. Explain it to me. And I want you also to say, what's your problem with tech moguls? You know, we're talking through Zoom. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, why are you so ungrateful? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to just say... Um, you know, before I explain what the podcast is, like the problem with tech moguls is there's just so much red tape mm. constraining them from doing the things they want to do. You know, like Elon wants to do all the things he says, but he can't because no one just lets him off the leash. Amen, you know? brother. And if we just gave him a little more leeway, you know, I think they could really follow through on a lot of this stuff. Um, no. So Tech Talk is my podcast. It's a fake tech podcast. Like you said, I edit these other podcasts for, you know, quote unquote, real podcasts that talk about actual issues. And that's how I pay my debt to society. But in my own time, I make a fake tech podcast. And it is a improvised, more or less, a, ultimately, like at this point, a three and a half year long form improvised podcast where a friend and I play these fictional divorced dads who um, consider themselves experts in all things tech. And I mean, they're tech dads. They're the kind of dads who love Tesla. They love Steve Jobs. You know, they love their iPhones. In point of fact, they don't know anything about tech. They're just pathetic divorced messes. Their families <laughs> hate them. Their sons hate them. They continually ruin their lives through their obsession and their other their, you know, mishaps. And um, it's like I said, it's I mean, we're on episode 130 or something now. It's been going on for three years. It's improvised. So, you know, it's improvised and then I edit it. And so it, it it's developed in these, you know, ways that you do when you're making up a story and sort of following it. And so, you know, at this point, they've had adventures that would sound really stupid if I described them. But, you know, it's I sort of pitch it to people as it's not a real tech podcast. It's a fake tech podcast. And it's a little unusual for podcasts in that I think if you joined late, it would be more or less incoherent and impenetrable. And so I recommend if anyone, if, if a super niche tech comedy podcast that isn't really about technology at all sounds up your alley, I do recommend starting at the beginning because it just, it, it builds in such a way that you have to be like, oh, well, that guy is their friend from the Best Buy who became their enemy and he banned them. And then they started a camp in the parking lot that sort of became like a surrogate state or like a little fiefdom. And then, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like it sort of um, demands <laughs> attention. So that, you know, that's the nutshell. What was the divine inspiration for it? Was there a specific moment? Was it a thing that Elon <laughs> or one of his ilk did specifically that it, led to it? It was specifically, I mean, part of the inspiration was my own. I mean, I would say it came from people we knew and it came from my own sickness because I, for years, not so much anymore, but I years ago would check, I don't know why, compulsion. When I first got an iPhone, you know, this is like, 2011 iPhone. I got my first iPhone and I got in the habit of checking like these websites that were like updates for Apple stuff, like what's coming. I wasn't that excited about it, but I would just do it. I would just check it every day and just sort of be like, oh yeah, there's a new update coming. Oh, interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. iOS, blah, blah, blah is coming soon. And I, I had like a waking up moment after several years where I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't 
care about any of this. Like, why would anyone care about any of this? And you sort of realize, like, there's these breathless articles and, like, long comment sections about, like, new iPhone will not feature notch cutout. <laughs> and then the people in the comments who are just like, yeah, right, I'll believe it when I see it. And other people who are just like, please don't post like that on this site. You know, like, people who are so invested in it's like the stupidest minutia of these, like, crumbs that were given by our tech overlords. <laughs> and then, like, people who just, like, breathlessly, you know, follow along and are so excited to know, like, it's, it's going to be light green and light blue and gray and not black, maybe gold, like just the stupidest shit. So that was my own sickness that I was kind of interested in. And then we have a friend whose dad was like the original person I think I thought of as a tech dad. And he would say how whenever he went, this is like 2015 or so, you know, back when Elon was not quite as visible. He had a dad who was just like constantly talking about Elon Musk. He'd be like, oh, you, you, you saw the latest SpaceX launch, yeah? You know, and like like earnestly just so invested in this these people. And, you know, that was the starting point was just this one-off thing a friend and I did was like, hey, let's do a podcast as the kind of people who hang out at the Best Buy and fixate on this like stupid shit. And then, you know, if you're locked in and you're in a true open improvisational mindset, you sort of quickly realize what else is going on here. It's like, well, you know, there's a lot of psychosexual fixation going on. And, you know, at this point in the show, it's like you sort of realize like, oh, well, when Elon had his baby with Grimes, they were excited for him, but also kind of jealous of the baby. And, and that, I think, has been the sort of well that we draw on is like, OK, what's really going on here? And again, it's all improvised. So we don't plan it. But like you very quickly wind up in this psychosexual place of like fathers, babies, fathers who want to be babies, you know, like I'm in I hate this person and I'm in love with them or I'm in love with this person and I want to kill them and I want to be them, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that's like that's the well that keeps on giving is just the pathos, the deep well of like mental unwellness. Yeah. Do you feel over the course of like years of world building an increased um, empathy for the tech bro followers? I think that we we like have made our characters so pathetic mm -hmm. that I feel empathy for them because they're just. Yeah, that, that that's what I mean. Like the people who are the fans. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For the characters, I feel deep empathy for the actual real life people who post on this stuff. I feel mostly sadness. And I would say, too, that like a lot of stuff. I mean, like now if you go on Twitter, you will find real people that we didn't make up posting pictures of Elon as a sexy baby mm -hmm. or like a hunky baby. And like that's shit that's like straight out of what we made up three years ago as an exaggeration. And it feels very, I mean, I'm constantly watching stuff like the whole Elon and Zuck fight. And like it sometimes feels weirdly prophetic in the way that everyone with not to compare ourselves to The Simpsons, but like people like to say, oh, how did The Simpsons anticipate this? Or how did The Simpsons forecast that this was going to happen? And it's like, well, The Simpsons just looked at what was happening and then exaggerated it a little bit. And that seems prophetic because everything just gets dumber over time. And that's sort of how it feels doing this podcast at this point. Like a lot of the stuff now that's happening, we don't even talk about. Because I'm like, well, what can you what can you say about like Elon Musk's mommy telling him he can't fight Zuck, which happened on Twitter? And you're like, There's, what, what? It, it, it's again, we would have made it up, but it's real. And so it, I feel somehow guilty for, I don't know, willing that into existence. Uh <laughs> But for me, you know, I mean, like we have songs now at this point in the podcast, we've released lots of music. I mean, it's the light of my life. We're on summer break right now. And it's, um, again, per the movie we watched this week, it's a work of passion that will that ultimately appeals to a handful of fanatics. And I think probably leaves most people feeling completely confounded um, and disturbed. The best kind of art. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, I know if my dad were, I think if my mom were alive, she'd be thrilled. If my dad were alive, he would say, I listen to your podcast and... I don't know what you're doing. 
Like, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, I'm always happy to talk tech talk. And it's again, it's it's not for everyone, but I think for the people it's for it's it's really for. Well, uh, sp- speaking of connections to the movies, you know, you look at Elon Musk and he really harkens back to a time when uh, capitalism worked. You know, back when we had titans of industry, you know, your Rockefellers, your um, that's the only name I can think of. Uh, 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 Bryant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there was a Bryant, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, you know, this documentary that we're watching also kind of looks backwards to a time when capitalism worked uh, uh, <laughs> and, and we had and we had art that expressed it. The documentary is 2018's Bathtubs Over Broadway. It's hard to top. The bathrooms are coming. What a great thing. I thought he made it I up. thought he made it up, too. And, like, it was this thing in our family. I was working at The Letterman Show as our comedy writer. I started finding these mysterious corporate records. Musicals, but about tractors or silicone products. I didn't know anything about musical theater, but I was pretty sure it wasn't supposed to be this. My bathroom. Everybody was doing these things. Giant companies, tiny companies. Jesse is bringing this to the podcast. The documentary follows Steve Young, who is a veteran comedy writer on The Late Show with David Letterman. And one of his signature contributions, one of his signature innovations to that show was, if you've seen old Letterman, you'll know that he had a segment where he would bring out old record albums, you know, weird, kitschy, strange LPs. It was a segment called Dave's Record Collection. And Steve Young would go to used record stores all around the New York area and dig in the oddities and the $1 bins and find strange albums. And over time, and this is something I can sympathize very strongly with, certain things that he used to collect ironically, somewhere along the lines, he got to really loving without irony. And uh, one of those things was industrial shows, which were a form that I guess I was sort of familiar with, but never put a name to. Uh, In the mid 20th century, Big brands, well, small, smaller brands too, but your General Motors is, companies like that would hold like big propaganda musicals full of dancing and singing and costumes and stories. And oftentimes the budgets of these would dwarf the budgets of actual famous Broadway shows. So he began to collect these albums that were soundtrack albums, you know, uh, songs talking about how great, you know, a certain company's bathtubs were or... uh, Or the powers of Xerox or management skills. Yeah. And so I sympathize with, with all of that. I sympathize. Much of the documentary is about his urge to collect which I'm sure you and I both uh, have a little bit of. Oh, yeah. What I struggle to sympathize with is caring about this one particular form of musical theater, which based on all the evidence that I see, I mean, it's great that he loves it. Based on all the evidence I see in this documentary, I would have trouble wrapping my head around this. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what you think. What do you think of the industrial shows? Well, I, I, one thing I wanted to add to your very good summary was that like these shows were for uh, the staff mm-hmm. and for like conferences. So they weren't outward facing at all. It wasn't like trying to sell people on these products, like the mass public, they weren't commercials. They were just for like sales conferences, which I I think is such an important feature of just how esoteric they are that like this wasn't even because like, you know, the idea of companies spending a lot of money to try to get people to buy their products isn't crazy. But the idea of companies spending 
spending $3 million to juice their sales force. So they were really excited to go sell like latex <laughs> is, uh, you know, I mean, I understand the charm of the concept. I would say musically. I mean, I'm not a musical theater person, really. I find the songs to be incredibly funny it just because, you know, listeners, I don't know if you'll drop a clip in or not, but like, you know, they, they are like, imagine a Broadway ballad, but it's about like the different kinds of faucets on the new <laughs> yeah. sinks coming out in 1963. And I can relate to being obsessed with the weirdness of it, mm-hmm. which is part of why I love this movie. And that is something I'm very drawn to as a collector is the just how like particular it is. Musically, I wouldn't be as excited as Steve Young is <laughs> by the songs necessarily. But I also think that part of what's so great about the documentary is that like it is so specific to him. Like it's not like something where you understand like like collecting Beatles records. Like, oh, of course, like the Beatles are great and their records are cool. And I think that it's the fact that it's so sort of impenetrable to viewers like yourself <laughs> captures what makes it so purely about collecting because the object of your fascination can be almost anything and that feels very profound to me as a as like a chronic collector well i do think that like when you're collecting or when you're becoming interesting in something that's sort of niche and esoteric the nicheness and esoterica of the thing can start to be the thing that propels it as much as anything absolutely i mean one, one of the things that i collect is uh i have a lot of lobby cards and publicity stills and just like mm. ephemera related to a guy named billy west not the voice actor but i was gonna say not not not, <laughs> not him um although if you look up billy west on ebay that's what you find bobbleheads that he signed but no billy west was a comedian in a russian-born comedian in the 1910s who was the world's greatest charlie chaplin impersonator he really got charlie chaplin down and you can mm. you could you watch him and it's like he's got all the mannerisms nobody before or since has done it as well and his movies you know when chaplin himself was like slowing down he was taking more time to make his movies perfecting them well billy west came into the void <laughs> and was like well hey i'll make a movie every two weeks and th- yeah. those movies would play you know all around the all around uh, america and beyond europe and asia everywhere in theaters that either couldn't afford the new chaplin movies or just needed content you know you watch those movies and he's kind of incredible but like the movies are not very good sure and sure. and like i don't know i've i have huge files of clippings that i found of just and and part i think partly i'm motivated by just how is nobody else interested in this guy it's it's amazing to live your life as the most right famous impersonator of another guy and to do it so well but only being the greatest impersonator of another guy is still not being the thing itself and the the pathos of that is powerful to to me. Yes, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I I relate to that so much. I mean, it feels to me like that that's two facets of obscurity that are interesting to me. And one is obscure and it was only ever obscure. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of stuff like that with records because I'm a big I, FYI for the listeners. I'm a big record collector. That's kind of my current collection fixation and has been for quite a while. And there's obscurity that was only ever obscure. And you talk about this, I know, with your old time radio that you've been listening to, mm-hmm. which is like obscure now from such a height which is another fascination and element of the like pathos of that we, moves me very deeply. Yeah. Yeah. The pathos for the people that I imagine, but also, I mean, you know, have we've both experienced our share of death, the implicit sense that time moves on and there's just this unknowable sense of what will mean anything. And something that I feel deeply in my collecting that this movie touches on is this sense of bearing witness, sometimes feeling like the last person or maybe the first person in some cases, you know, like mm-hmm. with some records I find it's like, 
how many of these were made 50 and I'm one of the people who has them, you know, or, and so it's like, am I the only person who ever heard this? And that's an element. And then there's this sense of like, am I the last person who will remember this guy? Because future generations are going to not be seeking out Charlie Chaplin impersonators, you know, I I definitely feel that then and then maybe misplaced, but one starts to feel a kind of like sense of responsibility or a sense of a sense of weight. I mean, a couple weeks ago in the podcast, I talked about this one radio comedian who I'm very interested in Fred Allen, who, as I said, was on the cover of Time magazine in 1947 nobody was more famous than him and now nobody is more obscure than fred allen and right. I, I do feel a kind of like a certain i mean i'm sure this is misplaced but i feel i feel a certain weight of like the last fred allen fan absolutely <laughs> well i i always say this with my record collecting is like the part that is most emotionally motivating and the most dangerous is the sense i feel as an anthropologist or a preservationist preservationist yes <laughs> And that's a dangerous thing because there's infinite number of these things to buy. And so like mm. I, I, you know, and that goes for not just, I mean, I have a lot of obscure records that I like because of their obscurity, but I feel that with all kinds of records. I see an Alice Coltrane record. And I don't particularly like free jazz or that kind of music, but there's a voice in my head that says, yeah, but this is an important record. This is a part of history. I should have this record. This should be a part of my collection so that I, you know, and then if you follow that line of thinking, it's like, well, so that what? It goes in a museum one day. It's like, there's not really a next step. It's just that impulse of historical value. And then I think that goes through a prism when it comes to obscure stuff, because there's that anthropological element, but then there's that sense of like, this was huge or this existed. And if I don't have it, it won't exist to anyone, is how it sometimes feels. You know, a lot of the records I buy, uh, I've, I've eased up, I've had to for space. But like, you know, being in Montana, you find lots of um, private press records, records put out by churches, records put out by a family or some person who wanted to just bankroll their own show, oftentimes lounge singers who were really big in Helena, Montana, and had enough success playing the piano at the bar that like they raised enough money to record a record. And that's just so fascinating to me that like there was at one point enough perceived demand, even if it was only in a small community, there was enough demand for this person to say, hey, I'm going to make an album of me with my drum machine and my organ. Mm -hmm. I find that and I just think like, wow, it feels to me like, and the movie I think captures this beautifully, almost like a line through history from that person in 1962 to me. (laughs) And I'm like, how did it end up here? Don't I have some obligation to like... (laughs) Or else it'll be landfill, you know. We're sa- or else it'll be landfill. It's like, it's like you're you're not just saving the object; you're saving all the memories attached to the object. And some sense of, I mean, so just for the movie, just to, if if you don't mind, will like a, a very brief overview of what happens in the movie is this comedy writer becomes obsessed with these recordings that were released never publicly, but you know, turn up in used record stores. And it starts out, I think, in a great depiction of just pure collection mania, where he just wants it all. There's no real greater purpose. It's just like, I want to have it all. And I mean, he likes it too, but he, you know, there's that pure collection. I need this. And I, and I like how it depicts sort of the community of collectors where it's yeah. like certain of the certain <laughs> albums, there are like maybe three people in the world who want it, but those three people want it really, really a lot. And um, they all, they're all friends, but also there's that thing I can recognize from being in collecting communities where they also all maybe kind of hate each other. Yes. <laughs> like a lot of passive aggression and like sniping, like veiled sniping at each other, I feel like. And so, you know, the movie sort of depicts his esoteric fixation, but then what happens as he, because he's an enterprising guy as he starts to track down people who were involved in these. And he says early on, his first motivation for reaching out to these people was to get more records. Like he just wants their stuff, which 
is relatable to anyone who likes to collect things. But then he starts to build connections with these people. He starts to meet the singers and the songwriters. And it becomes, I think, a very beautiful, it's very moving for me, this this journey he takes, because, you know, he meets all these people who this was uh, the most prolific they were in their career, perhaps, as a songwriter or a composer or a singer. And it's for this thing that they had made their peace with being a bit of forgotten stuff. And I think it just depicts him basically bringing attention to them and saying, I know what you did and I love what you did. And I, I'm bearing witness to what you did. And then, you know, he goes on to make some songs with some of them and to put out a book. But for me, the real beauty is not even that he like, it's not like he restores them to fame or it's not like, and they became as big as they always dreamed of. It's more like he just bears witness. He's like, I love your work. And I know about your work. And that to me feels like a kind of the noblest embodiment of that principle, which is like, you kind of want to be able to say to Fred Allen, hey, Fred Allen, it's 2023. I really like what you were doing. Or at the very least, I know what you were doing. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, which, I, I didn't which is forget. the dream, yeah. So, I mean, the documentary does make a case for the historic significance and consequence of these industrial shows. Many of the writers and performers went on to, well, be involved in such musicals you've heard of as Cabaret and Fiddler on the Roof. Chicago. Yeah, the likes of Bob Fosse and Martin Short, the latter of whom is interviewed in the documentary, got their start in such musicals. <laughs> Here. They also, of course, capture a particular time of American capitalism towards the end when the documentary is giving you, you know, sort of the, the final thoughts. People observe that something of the innocence of the musicals, the uh, pride in the product and of the work in the musicals was something specifically of its time. There's one talking head who says people were lifers. They would work for Kenny Shoes their entire careers. I don't even think you could anymore. Somebody else says People who made these cars cared about them so they could say, I'm part of this. I made this. I'm not sure Steve Young would phrase it this way, but I'm sure like part of, you know, obviously what one of the things he's responding to is like these things are sort of kitschy and they seem out of time and they seem of a time that's not ours. Um, And I wonder how much of that is, yes, kitschy as it is, there's a sort of nostalgia for a time when like American industry did seem to be working. Um, which like, if I think of like why I find these musicals a little bit alienating, um, (laughs) and maybe, maybe there's a sort of boomer and younger divide in this. Like I find the musicals a bit alienating because they seem to be a lie to me, but I can imagine. (laughs) Oh, you don't believe how nice the new toilets are going to be in 1973? (laughs) Um, I believe they probably did make very good toilets, uh, because that's American manufacturing that made those toilets. Not, not any of that, uh. (laughs) Not any of that cheap labor overseas. But sort of knowing that it, you know, American industry turned into what it did, it renders the whole thing like sort of ghoulish to me. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that kind of goes unacknowledged and, and you know, here you go, folks, this is the political angle. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing that I kind of think goes, you know, they, they basically say these started to die out in the 80s, which is, of course, when everything started to sort of distort and laborers being shipped overseas and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, why were these companies spending $3 million on a musical for their staff 
I mean, it was a tax write-off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, a, it, and of course, you know, I'll I'll grant them that they could have had perfectly reasonable, wonderful feelings about how good this would be for their staff. Sure, but also it was financially expedient to do so, or at least you know it didn't probably matter because they were making enough money they could write it off. And then it stopped being so probably because they started just putting that money into stock buybacks. I don't fault the movie for this, but I think the movie sort of says times changed. And the company stopped doing this or stopped, you know, and, and they do, like you said, they, they pay lip service to the fact that like, you know, people aren't working at companies for their whole lives. They aren't retiring after 80 years at the tractor or 50 years at the tractor factory. And like, I'm not going to come down on the movie for like not being a, a Marxist screed or anything, but like, <laughs> but, but, but I mean, I do think we all know, and there are different shades possible depending on who's watching as to like what the tragedy is and where the tragedy is and what the origins of the tragedy are. Totally. And I think whether you as a viewer say, oh, uh, it, it happened, it fell apart for all the reasons that American labor and, and mm-hmm. manufacturing fell apart. And whether you say that the people involved were responsible or it was just, a, you know, because people would say, well, it was part of the fluke economy of the post-war where just things were good for a lot of reasons that some of which were intentional and a lot of which were just the, the experience, you know, the fact of the war and all that. So it's like, you know, the movie doesn't quite say it's the CEO's fault or it's just it was bound to happen. I think you can read all that into it. I mean, it does occur to me that you're like, these shows could never exist for gig workers. Like... <laughs> A, they wouldn't put the money into them, but like no company now is going to be like, we're going to spend $300,000 on a show for our Uber drivers so that they like really get excited because now it's just like, we don't have to make you care about your job. Yeah. We don't have to make you, we don't have to make you excited to be a good manager. Like just do the job or quit. We'll find someone else who will do it. And that's very much in the shadows of the movie, but I wouldn't say that's where the heart of the movie lies in dealing with those issues. Which is fine. I mean, I guess it is there if you seek to look for it. It's it's off stage. Yeah, it is funny, though. I mean, I'm not sure what you would put quite in the lineage of this. But, you know, you mentioned in the documentary says that these sorts of industrial shows died out in the early 80s. And I guess that would have been around the time that, you know, within 10 years, there was a sort of like ad busters culture and like big companies were responding with things like, I don't know, OK Soda or um, right, 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 or, 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 or like MTV or things that had a sort of uh, caustic gaze at uh, the media industrial complex that created them. And then like today, there's the Barbie movie, which is all about like <laughs> a company sort of being in on the joke. Uh, like at, at, right. a, at a certain point, something like this became impossible because of the political economy around these companies to make a completely like, isn't it great to work here? Isn't it great to represent this product kind of yeah. cultural event? It had to in some way to incorporate the changes that were made to American capitalism. It had to incorporate those changes in the form of like, yes, we know this is shit. Yeah, well, they are painful. I mean, in the mid-century style of so many things, they are painfully earnest, mm-hmm. the musicals. I mean, they, they, they didn't think, isn't this funny, we're doing a musical about the new uh, John Deere tractor. They thought, well, we're going to do a musical about the John Deere tractor, and we want it to be as good as Oklahoma. There's something very sweet about that, but yeah, completely out of step with I mean, and they do allude to at the end of the documentary, like these do do still exist, you know, like in the more recent years in some to some degree. I also I mean, I think for me, this gets to the record angle, too, is like like you're talking about the Charlie Chaplin impersonator. And I think something that's really hard to, you know, wrap our head around now is pre digital pre accessibility of everything. You know, like a lot of the records I buy are 
bar bands or cover bands who would do covers of these songs. And it's so it feels so stupid because you're like, why the hell would I want to listen to this person do, you know, Good Morning Starshine or like whatever, like the uh, covering of the Fifth Dimension or something like that. And it's like, well, yeah, but if you lived in Great Falls, Montana, and you liked that band and you couldn't go see the Fifth Dimension because you lived in Great Falls, Montana, or you couldn't go see the Beatles, well, this local band might be pretty damn good. Like, you know, it's not the real thing, but it's still pretty good. And that I think is something like now that the real thing is forever accessible, you can find it on YouTube or you can listen to the real recording at the snap of a finger. It's like that feels much further away. Like, why on earth would you want to be a cover band when, you know, when the real thing is more or less around? And I think that's something to that here with this too, where it's like, you know, it feels to us like, well, why would you go see this show when you could go see Oklahoma? It's like, well, you couldn't go see Oklahoma. Right. <laughs> you know, right. if you didn't live in New York, I mean, but but you could see this musical, which, you know what, actually had this guy who went on to do the music for Cabaret or whatever. Right. So it's like, there's a degree of regionality and, and providence, or what's the word I'm looking for? Provincial. There's a provincial quality to it that's also quite quaint in terms of like, they were trying to do the best they could. And there probably would be a lot of excitement because maybe that would be the only musical that the employees of whatever company would see in their lives. Maybe that would be it, you know? It illuminates an American business world that doesn't exist at all anymore. There's something about a show, if it's not being heard, then it's really gone. I feel a kinship with so many of these people. It's gone further than I've imagined. Life can be so rich and wonderful when we step off the logical path and embark on eccentric adventures. Well, I enjoyed this movie a great deal. And before we go, I do want to ask, you mentioned your record collection. Can you tell me some of the like crown jewels, the pearls? Like what are the weirdest things you found? <laughs> well, I've done some radio. I do a, a radio show actually tonight, Wednesday night. I, I do a vinyl radio show every week. And I've done a couple shows recently of my weirdest stuff. I mean, for me, what I love about Bathtubs Over Broadway is... Yes, it's funny, but more than that funniness, there is this feeling of like, why did this get made? And then how did I find it? Mm -hmm. How did it get to me? Like, it feels like there's multiple, there's a line in the movie I love where he says, he says a couple times, versions of, on a logical basis, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be hearing this. This wasn't made for me. And that, I think, really fuels a lot of it for me, where I'm like, how did this find its way here? There's a record I absolutely love. Um, that's a, I have a lot of weird Christian records and there's one that is called, the title track is called King of the Clowns. It's a like eighties synthesizer song and the back cover describes something to the effect of like Jesus is, was the greatest clown of all. (laughs) And like, we should all be clowns like Jesus or something to that effect. And then the song is like this incredibly earnest 80s ballad featuring an interpolation of the circus, like, dun, 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 but like played very dramatically and very magisterially. Is, is he a clown because he's entertaining? Because he, uh... I think it's like being humble and like being, a, mm. not being afraid of looking like a fool, I think. I mean, mm. I can go get it. It's right over there. But that is one that I love for sheer, like, how did this get made? I have one of my favorites that is not funny at all, but is like... Uh, is fabulous is this record called by the apostolic messengers which is a group that i that doesn't exist online except i added them to discogs which is the record collecting website this is like the best you can hope for when you hunt obscure records is it's actually good and it like sounds so good and the woman has this incredible like low alto voice and just is like belting it and it just sounds fantastic and 
I couldn't get past like how good it sounded and the fact that I couldn't find anything about it online. So I started digging around in the liner notes on the back just trying to be like, something here has to connect to something. Like, how did this just get made? And I look when I bought it too, like you can tell from the typography and the font and the design, like it just looks like it was well made. And I ended up looking up the names of like the recording studio, nothing but a bunch of other weird Christian music. I looked up the name of the engineer and it was the same engineer as the second record by the meters who music fans will know are this like highly sought after like some say the first funk group like the funkiest coolest records you can find produced by alan toussaint who's like the greatest american songwriter in my opinion fabulous producer so the same guy who made these like crown jewel rare funk recordings in the same year was just cutting this random christian group from indiana who came down to record and like that moment felt like one of those beautiful moments and like oh yeah this is why i do it is like feeling like you are somehow holding the strands of the web together and like learning something that has no value whatsoever (laughs) but that feels so significant like oh wow wow like Roger so-and-so was in the same room with so-and-so. You know, it's just like it feels like you're part of the history in a funny way. But, you know, I mean, I've got Lou Rawls in the um, live Garfield show, Garfield the Cat. Oh, wait a minute. I want to hear about this. Let me grab it for you. Hold on one second. Here comes Garfield. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Okay, so there was a big plush Garfield on the stage. There was a live action. This was a live action show. Lou Rawls, Desiree Goyette. I don't know who that is. Um, But it's it's a live action show with songs and dialogue. Wow. And these are some others I grabbed on the way. Rappin' Rodney. Well, I've got Rappin' Rodney, too. I figured. I figured you would. Uncle Milt's Pipe Organ Pizza Company, (laughs) which is a pizza restaurant, I guess, that had a giant pipe organ in it. This album features versions of the 2001 Space Odyssey medley. Sorry, Star Wars 2001 Space Odyssey medley. And like, you know, Ain't Misbehaving, Evil Knievel's album. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is just ones I got. And the 1974 JCPenney's Management Conference. Oh, wow. Uh, a real deal industrial musical. This one's great because it's all about management. One of the songs is called All You Need Is a Wife. So true. Uh, <laughs> so anyhow, I I will just say like, I collect all kinds of records. I, I have actual records too by good bands that I like to listen to. Um, but... This movie for me really spoke to that compulsion you can't quite put your finger on where you just find something and you think someone needs to know about this or or I need to know about this. And by buying it and owning it, I will have helped complete the cycle somehow mm-hmm. for this person who, you know, made this terrible album 70 years ago. I could not agree with you more, even though I know it's irrational. Um <laughs> Well, Jesse, thanks again for coming on the podcast on such short notice. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And also for bringing this movie, which I enjoyed very much and found much to identify with. I teared up both times I've watched it now. I found it. I'm a softie in that way, but like I find it to be quite sweet and um, kind of the most noble form of fixation and obsession that you can imagine. Thanks very much. And uh, watch this drive. Gets to the store before the light of dawn And he stays till the sun has come around and gone Oh man, he's a penny man In the great tradition of a penny man If he wishes that he could be a simple clerk When he looks at his office and the paperwork Oh man, he's a penny man In the great tradition of a penny man 
If he's glad when a visit from the brass is through And it goes for his DM and his EM too Oh man, he's a penny man In the great tradition of a penny man If he looks at the kind of stuff the buyer picks And he knows that he's in the hands of lunatics Oh man, he's a penny man In the great tradition of a penny man.